Greetings and salutations, board game fans. The Dice Pirates are back. This is episode 45, and today we're actually going to do another fun themed episode. We're going to go ahead and break down kind of the history of card games and the history of cards in general, like within America. And uh, of course, I am your host, Ian, joined by Aaron and Matt, as always. And to kind of walk us through this is going to be uh, my wife, Tori. She's joining us once again, and she actually, as part of a recent paper that she was doing, really did a lot of research and history into this. So super glad to have you here again. Yeah, thank you so much. It's nice to be in. I'm like a such a fan of the show, so every time I get to come on, which now is twice, it's really exciting. Oh, now you immediately class up the joint, just uh, right away. Yeah, thank you. No, I'm I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I um, I am a doctoral student of art history, as you guys know. Uh, but for the benefit, I guess, of the audience, I'm those are sort of my credentials in talking about this. Is that I like talking about pieces of American material culture, uh, and podcasting is a famously visual based. <laughs> this is a great. Is a great this is a great venue to talk about talk visual about. art. Absolutely, I, I love your perspective, Absolutely. like coming yeah. into this discussion because board games are a really interesting piece of like material art. You know, they combine all these different disciplines of like visual design, making crafting and making neat objects that are fun to look at and hold. So I love bringing an artist. Uh, history uh art art scholarly perspective to the to the game space no i agree and i think one of the things that's so fun about cards is that they're very much um an everyday thing you know it's it's a piece of life that many different social classes and people groups have you know participated in card playing and card making and so it's not something that is uh you know, only reserved for sort of highbrow conversations. It's something that, you know, we can all relate to thinking about cards. So that makes it additionally fun, I think, to talk about them. Yeah, it's going to be a really cool, it's going to be a really neat discussion. I'm excited to get into it. Of course, we are going to start off with our soapboxes, as always. And uh, I actually wanted to kick us off real quick, because I know Matt has something, but I just, I've been dying to, to talk about it. And of course, this is the, you know, the place where I can talk and you guys have to listen. So uh, <laughs> By the laws but, you know, of, of course, Dice Pirates. <laughs> The, the Laws of Dice Pirates. Um, the Last of Us is premiering on HBO, and we're now into the third episode. And I am just, I'm loving this show so much. I, I watched somebody play through the game, because honestly, the video game is there for the story. I watched somebody play through it, I never played through it myself. And so I was like, okay, well, this will be interesting. It's a good story. We'll see how they do. And I mean, three episodes in out of a 10 episode run, you know, so we're almost a third of the way through. And they've knocked it out of the park so far. It's been absolutely incredible. And I, we are like, I'm genuinely excited each week for the new episode. And I was not expecting it like a genuinely good video game tie in adaptation. And I, I am so excited for the rest of it. Do I need to know anything about the last of us, the video game to enjoy this television program? Because I'm a, this this is the house that Bill Gates built. We're we're Xboxing in this house. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest. You you need to know. Honestly, it may even be better for you if you go in knowing nothing about it, because there are like certain elements. And and this is what I think it's done really well. It has taken elements of the game that would not translate well into a show format. For instance, this most recent episode, episode three, which I think is one of the best episodes of television I've seen in years absolutely incredible episode and uh they took what was essentially a very long extended fetch quest in the game and turned it into an incredible piece that differed 
uh, fairly severely from where the game went, but in a way that didn't necessarily like ruin it. And I think improved on it, at least in the context of a show where you're unable to have the same uh, agency with your character. So they have adjusted some things to make them work within the show. And they've done a good job of actually making it make sense to somebody who has no prior knowledge. Yeah, I think you can totally go in not having played the game. Uh, but if or if you have played the game, there are a lot of cool little Easter eggs and hidden jokes and things like that uh, that they include. Like, there's a lot of detail, uh, in part because the creators of the game are so involved in the production of the show. There's a lot of details from the game that have made it into the show. So it's nice. So yeah, you can do it either way. But I think it'll be just as rewarding an experience. Oh, man, I am like... I'm feeling like so much so left out of this because I just canceled HBO Max subscription. So I could have been watching this, but I just I was like I had not I hadn't watched anything on HBO Max in ages, and I was like, do I really care about The Last of Us? I didn't get into the game back when it was. I know it was like really well reviewed and really popular, but I sort of had like apocalypse fatigue at that point in my life. Like I was like, I just don't need any more medium media about sad people in blighted landscapes. Uh, but maybe I need to give this a shot. I don't know. It sounds really good. I love Pedro Pascal and like everything. I mean, uh, you know, so I don't know. I guess I need he to is, give it a shot. He is, he is our slutty daddy. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to agree with that, but I, I find that I can't disagree. Like he said that though. He did like that. I can, God. I can pull I you. I know he said that. Just an endless stream of gifts. You're not gonna cut any of this. Pedro Pascal saying yeah. every, every I'm your slutty daddy. Okay. I mean, uh, I, I will say too about The Last of Us. Um, one of my memories of it before I even played it was um, Ian and I were in England visiting my family a few years ago. I think it was December of 2018, and we went to the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, uh, in part because they had this really exciting show up. Um, at that time called Video Games Design Play Disrupt, I think. Uh, and it was all about like games and just a really, really great exhibition that would be you know hard to go over everything that was in it. Yeah. But one of the things that was in it was a commentary on the use of um, AI and the use of sort of like Im image capture technology and also like sort of... Um, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but like machine learning almost, like training the NPCs to know where to follow you and oh, how yeah. to follow you and things like that. And uh, that was really neat. So that was my first exposure to Last of Us was actually in like a world-class art and design museum, seeing it like projected on a big screen. So that's yeah, awesome. but the game, the game is actually a great a great game as well. But I'd say, you know, the reason you play it is for the story and the show is doing a great job communicating that too. So, well, and speaking of games, just to, to tie this back into board games briefly, uh, Themeborn, uh, a publisher that I love for their cool little, uh, escape the dark series of games has just dropped a Kickstarter for a prestige looking last of us, uh, board game that seems to be, uh, I guess if you like the show, you should probably check that out. Um, I remember when that Kickstarter dropped from them, I was a little uh, disappointed because I was like, I wanted them to do something, another like original IP or something similar. But I got to admit, it does look really cool and uh, couldn't be better timing for Themeborn with The Last of Us <laughs> blowing up right now. So good on them. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it, it looks great. 
I'm definitely, definitely a big fan of the show, and that's something I'll definitely take a, a close look at. Matt, I know that you have a, a soapbox as well for us, and one that's a little bit more board game focused. It's extremely board game focused in that it is about a board game. Uh, I, I played a board game recently, and I wanted to share some thoughts. I played uh, Tiny Epic Dungeons, uh, the second of my recent Tiny Epic purchases, and I finally got it to the table. Uh, I will not give a full review or explanation of it because I don't want to take the whole episode, but and also... Uh, Aaron reviewed the uh, Tiny Epic Dungeons already in a past episode, so if you'd like to get some detailed thoughts on it, feel free to uh, peruse the back catalog, available on the podcast catcher of your choice. Uh, But I played it, and my feeling was that uh, I think finally with Tiny Epic Dungeons, Gamelin games may have, like, flown ever so slightly too close to the sun with, like, what can be achieved with the tiny form factor. It is borderline inscrutable to understand <laughs> how to play this game <laughs> with the form factor that they have scaled it down to. It works. It's a very good dungeon crawler. It's actually very fun, but learning to play it and understand the information that it's trying to convey to you on cards that are so tiny and have no words and have a absolutely labyrinthian visual language of symbols was the most like the first 30 minutes of the game was just like i don't know what this card is telling me to do i have a feeling in my heart of what this card is telling me to do and we're gonna go with that (laughs) uh you knew it was bananas it really is like just a, a case of like it's too big a game for the form factor right so the tiny epic games you know to recap if you're if this is your first episode, you don't know what we're talking about. Gamelin publishes a great series of little box board games that try to replicate everything you'd get in a full-featured, big, expensive box, but in a box the size of a, a trade paperback edition of uh, your favorite fantasy novel series. So they're uh, little boxes that you could throw in a backpack. They're wonderful little products. They're kind of neat exercises in design and economy of design, but... Dungeon crawls are famously complex things. There's lots of moving parts, events, encounters, monsters, traps, dungeons, peril. And uh, every tile that you lay out that forms your little modular dungeon has uh, just a mess of symbols on it trying to tell you, like, what is happening here. Every enemy, uh, they didn't want to keep it simple. They couldn't resist the urge to make this game complex. They're not just simple enemies like, this enemy has this much health and this much armor and you roll to hit it. it. The enemies have like AI routines of like how they move and how they attack. They they have different modifiers based on if they're attacking you at range or at distance, or if you're attacking them at range, or if you're attacking them at distance. Or uh, it is all of this is being conveyed to you on a card uh, the size of like those little squares in a game of memory, and using nothing but symbols and no words. It's bananas. Uh, it's sort of like a buyer beware thing. If you can get past all that and learn to parse it, it's a fun little pick up and play dungeon crawler but boy they uh they had their icarus moment with this one i think i love that half of your complaint was that the cards themselves are too tiny like it sounds like this tiny epic game may have been simultaneously too tiny and too epic at the same that's time. exactly it it was just it's too much it's too much, man. Uh, Aaron, you played Except it. Do like you feel the fast same way? Fast and Furious title. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> tiny too tiny, epic. too epic. Too tiny. <laughs> too epic. <laughs> too big. <laughs> Not to harp too much, but yeah, it is it is absolutely their most ambitious design. And it it is, it is the limits of what you could do with that sort of game. Yeah. I mean, just like... like I, I genuinely hope 
future titles they they see this feedback and they're like let's scale back like i get the i get them wanting to do it and what they did is very impressive mm-hmm. i don't know if they needed to <laughs> they were so worried of whether or not they should they didn't stop to ask whether or not yes. they wait i said yes. that backwards <laughs> <laughs> they're so worried about whether or not they could they didn't ask whether or not they should uh <laughs> But it was a fun like game. As a, of, as a technical yeah. feat, as a, yeah. a thing that was done. Could we take a dungeon crawl? Could cool. we take D&D and put it in a little box you can put in your pocket? In the back pocket of your Jinkos. Uh, it is, uh, yeah, they did it. They did scale it down. And it is fun. I liked it. You know, I have a high threshold for like, uh, or, or actually not a high bar. But I have a very low bar for dungeon crawls. I like them. Even the most kind of garbage one, I can find some fun in because I like the whole milieu. So this one was going to have to be pretty bad to let me down, but I would say that it was not, it was above, like it was pretty good. Like it was very good. I think everyone who played it uh, for our Sunday night game group liked it, even though we lost uh, pretty miserably. The final thing I'll say about it, and then we'll move on, is it had the most comically ridiculous difficulty curve since uh, the time I played Robinson Crusoe with Dennis, where we really thought that we like had the game won and then immediately collapsed in a, in a span of like a round and a half. This had the exact same thing of like the first few rounds are just like you're exploring little rooms and like not much is happening. It's like, oh, there's a goblin. Wonk, it's dead. This is easy peasy. And then we all split up. We did the stupid thing that you're never supposed to do in games like this. We split the party, went to four different corners of the dungeon, just like this is fine. And within seconds, we were surrounded by peril and death. People were trapped in the corners like, I can't move. Uh, it was, uh, it fell apart instantly, and we did not progress past Act 1 and Act 2. So I got to play it again to really say uh, what the game is. But anyway, initial impressions, mixed, generally like it, bold and ambitious experiment from Gambling Games. <laughs> Definitely not the reaction that I imagine Gamelin Games was hoping when they made the game. Speaking of reactions that were not expected when the developers made the game, we're going to play Bitter Board Gamers. And nice oh my goodness, do I have a good, do Let's I have do some good reviews for you guys? You got guys. some bangers? This is going to be, I, this is going to be great. <laughs> people still, so people still I, say bangers. I, uh, you say bangers, and that's yeah, enough for me. Certified hood classics. Oh, people don't say that. We don't say that. All right. <laughs> Everyone says that. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and read you guys some one-star reviews. You're going to guess what game I'm talking about. Are you guys ready for your first review? I'm ready. Uh, I'm ready. All right, here we go. This game is a dressed-up turd. (laughs) Good-looking design and components that amount to zero depth. After a few games, it moves lightning fast because the choices are just obvious, and the game quickly becomes entirely dependent on card draws. What a disappointment. It is so highly rated here on BGG, and my local game store staff raved about it. Honestly, cribbage produces more excitement and strategy. Backgammon, even. I mean, first off, first off, hold your tongue. I see you, Matt. I see you about to talk some ish about cribbage. I've never played Uh, cribbage. I don't even know what cribbage is. Cribbage is (laughs) legitimately one of the greatest games I've ever played. Cribbage is a great game. There's an app you can get for your phone called Cribbage with Grandpa. That can't be true. Where... Where you design a grandpa to play cribbage with you? What is, what is cribbage? Uh, this is hundred percent real. It's a hundred thousand percent real, uh, and a grandpa will like offer you hints oh, and teach cribbage. you how to play the game. Cribbage is one of these like games that you get when like some well-meaning uncle or aunt buys you that like box of a thousand games, and it's like a pegboard <laughs> with some cards, and you'll never play this in your entire life. That looks 
Yeah. It's <laughs> genuinely very fun. Okay. Uh, now onto the oh. the actual thing that we were doing. Uh -huh. Um, I I got nothing. Got Wait, nothing a dressed up turd, highly rated, all all style, no substance. You know what I feel like this is. What do you think it is? But it, no, it's the card play is not. My first thought was Parks. Not Parks. I was thinking Gloomhaven just because like that's where I gravitate to. But like... all right, all right, all right. So not not Gloomhaven. I'm gonna give you another guys uh, guys another review here. Uh huh. Say say what you want, but I honestly hate it. So much better two-player games out there, to be honest. Feels like a mockery of the original due to the constant rock-paper-scissors type picking. Also, zero card drafting, which I think is a fundamental of the yeah. original. The hate drafting is a big turnoff for me. Avoid it if you're a peaceful player or a cooperative player like myself. Card drafting was a part Seven of the original? Seven Wonders Duel? It is Seven Wonders Ooh. Duel. What? What? What a weird, like... What a weird game to feel that strongly about. But they're wrong. And let's all talk about the ways. They are wrong. They are, uh, yeah. They're it's very a wrong. Game. It's a fantastic game. It's, and it's uh, one of my favorite two-player games because it's, I don't know. I, the comment about um, choices being obvious over time is interesting because it's just like, well, yeah, that's what happens when you get good at a game because you've played it a couple of times so you like know what sort of things to do. <laughs> yeah. But also like... I don't know. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great game. I love it. I can't really you guys will talk about it more eloquently than I can, but I enjoy playing it. So that person is wrong is my That opinion. person is wrong. You know what else has <laughs> obvious choices? Chess. Checkers. <laughs> These classic games that have stood the test of time. Uh I don't know. I don't see that. I don't see that game being obvious. Actually, I find that game to be fairly challenging, but I'm also an idiot, so like I don't know. But like I don't I don't really know how to play it, so I don't think I've ever won it. But I like it. I disagree entirely. Dress, I also feel like dressed up turd is like a really like overstatement. It's not even like, it's a pretty utilitarian game. It's just cards with pictures on them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's got That's a little battle track, you know? So it's got, it's yeah, got it some have a little components bit. and things. But I love those. I love a cute little component. Yeah. The components were nice. Yeah. Not, I, I, I like it for sure. I understand kind of where they're coming from. But like you said, it was a little strong of an opinion about Seven Wonders Duel of all games. Now, this next game. <laughs> I have never seen a game bring out the creative writing, the creative juices, in such a hateful way <laughs> as I have seen this game. And it is glorious. I'm going to give you a first review. Okay. But this second review is going to be a long one, and we're going to read it in its entirety after you guys give some guesses, regardless of whether you get it or not, because this second review is the creme de la creme of one-star reviews. Okay. <laughs> oh, wow. So... Here's your first here's your first review. No connection to farming whatsoever. You compete against players for action places. The solo mode is boring, you're just going for a better score. You would expect that the developers spend at least a few minutes learning about basic farming mechanics and how to incorporate them into a game. Last but not least, the drawings are preschool level at best. Disappointing game. Is this, this is Agricola? This is definitely a it is Agricola. Yeah, <laughs> Agricola. Sorry, Agricola. The Grick, yep. the Grick, as Zaren would say. Point to Clower since you said it correctly. First. Uh, wow. Well, I took three years of high school Latin, so I know that it's pronounced Agricola. Wow, I took three uh, the equivalent of three semesters of university level <laughs> Latin, and I'm out here saying Agricola. Pick up. Here we go. All right, you guys, you guys ready? Because I need you to buckle in a little bit. This is we're gonna go on a ride. How bad is Agricola? Let me bore. 
with a story that best describes it. When I got back into gaming around 2009, I was exposed to Euro games. I was an old school war gamer who had been out of the loop for 25 plus years, which had dulled my senses. So I was really digging Euros. I'd yet to play any of the revered top 10 on BGG, and then a well-intentioned soul invited me to play Agricola. Oh goody, the number two ranked game. If you are familiar with Lord of the Rings, I was like King Theoden of Rohan, and Euros were like warm tongues. As I play Agricola, and I use play generously, as that implies some level of fun. I start waking up and seeing through the haze. This game was terrible. It had about as much to do with farming as Nexus Ops has with ballet. And unlike other Euros, this one was dragging on. It felt like centuries. It wasn't because of analysis paralysis at the table. It was because this game was accelerating our table to near light speeds and relativistic effects were slowing time to a crawl. Not wanting to be that guy who cuts out on a game, and even one that sucks as much as Agricola, I pondered ways to actually leave the game that would be acceptable. I was thinking, if the second coming happened right now, that would be cool. (laughs) If you remember the old TV commercials, I desperately tried to recreate the magic of saying, Calgon, take me away! But alas, I did not transport to a bubble bath. I I once pulled out my trifold wallet, flipped it open, leaned over, and discreetly spoke into it, Scotty! Beam me up, hoping against all hope it would actually work. When the torture was over and the victory points were tallied, I won! No, I did not have the most. Not by a long shot. No, I won because I would never be exposed to this game again. The poor folks at the table were still under Wormtongue's influence and were repeating the misery. Not only was I woke, I was rejuvenated. Agricola tried everything to break me, but I overcame. Now that I fully understood what multiplayer solitaire and themeless abomination meant, with clarity of thought, I drove home afterwards, got on BGG, and lowered the rating of every single Euro game I have ever played, because I saw Euros for what they are. This game is so broken, it broke an entire genre for me. How's that for broken? I rose a new and better man and embraced the glorious war games of my youth and their distant cousin, the Ameritrash. I guess I owe a great debt to Agricola. If not for the depths of its suck, I might still be stuck in that beige-colored land of elegant mechanics and utter boredom. So thank you, Uwe, for freeing me from this cage. Wow. Okay. This is first what of all a lot of words to say. I was very bad at this board game. Nobody won, Aaron. You didn't listen. He won. He was a changed man. He was like a phoenix reborn from the ashes of uh, Agricola's uh, despair. Uh, there's so much to like about that. I'd like to say a several. I'd like to say a number of things. One is for some reason it felt like Ben Shapiro wrote that. I don't know why. Just that was my immediate thought. <laughs> that was like my first reaction. I was like, this is definitely Ben Shapiro's secret alt BGG account. Uh, two, uh, my favorite line in the whole thing was, unlike most Euro games, this one really dragged on, <laughs> 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 which is. An incredible thing to say uh, as someone who's played a lot of Euro games. Uh, I think that time, uh, there's like a relativistic time thing that happens when you play Euro games and it somehow goes slower. There's like, you spend more time in the game than actually past. Um, I don't know. That was fascinating. That was brilliant. I hope that guy feels better and felt some catharsis. I, I could not believe the, the what, what I read. It, it blew me away and I could not stop laughing. I'm going to give you guys one more review just because, like I said, this one brought out the best of people. This one's much shorter, but I, I quite liked it. I've never been waterboarded, but I imagine the experience is comparable to agriculture. I don't, oh, no. The process of partaking in this game was so prolonged I was convinced the clock was going backwards. 
It later turned out that due to daylight savings, the clock had gone backwards, but the point still stands due to my growing fear that I was stuck in some sort of time loop that I couldn't escape, and I would be stuck in a purgatory in which I was forever damned to play Agricola. I think the earliest clue that the game was not meant for me was while reading the instructions I got a call from my family informing me that my grandparents had died in a freak accident on their farm in the valley. I bring this review to you from their funeral service. I actually think I'm having more fun here. I never in a million years could have predicted the way that review was going to end. <laughs> yeah, it went, it went some places. I didn't expect the death of his grandparents. I mean, it was I like... I wish I cared about anything as much as these people cared about hating... Sure. It was a... Uh, I, honestly, I would say just go to, Agri go, go to Agricola on board game geek read through some of the one-star reviews it's a trip and uh these are just some of the the most enjoyable ones i found but yeah so that's bitter board gamers uh i had a lot of fun with that one this time and uh, if you guys did too we're gonna go ahead and take a quick break and we'll be right back to our main discussion Alrighty, and welcome back to the dice pirates where we're gonna go ahead and jump into our main topic this week which is gonna be the history of cards, uh, a ubiquitous part of the games you play, but how did we get to having cards? How did they become a part of the way we play and the way we do things? And uh, joining us to explore that is uh, Tori. So Tori, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first, I mean, I, I think maybe I'll, I'll clarify a little bit. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to cover the entire history of cards and how we... Sure became how how we started playing them um but i do want to talk about sort of a specific aspect of cards uh going in a little bit to their history but also talking about um a, a special kind of card and how it flourished in the u.s uh so that's that's the main thing i want to talk to, about today uh but first i wanted to start because like you say you know cards are ubiquitous we see them in all sorts of games uh, we see them outside of games, you know, like paper cards are just a huge part of our everyday lives as people in the 21st century. Um, and they have been a part of people's everyday lives for a long time. Uh, so before we even talk about their history, I just wanted to ask, like, does anybody have any particular memories of card games that you really enjoyed? Or, you know, like, what what's your experience? Like, what's the first card game that you remember playing? And... How do you interact with cards now? Mm. That's a great question. <clears throat> That's a really good question. I think for me, like when I remember growing up and a big part of the cards was basic uh, spades and hearts and uh, cribbage and, and bridge, um, things like that. And uh, I would watch like my parents play them. And I, as soon as I could, I wanted to join in just because I you know, could see they were enjoying themselves. And so I wanted to play with them. And I think I've sort of lost sort of my approach towards cards as the only medium necessary for a game there's still plenty of uh, games that i play that are only cards but i think i see cards as much more of an accessory to a game something that can be additive as the end all be all themselves we grew up playing like family card games and my dad is like a preacher naturally good at spades like to the extent that he has this like psychic understanding of all the cards that everyone is holding in, the, in their hand. And he will just look at you and be like, you've got the jack of, and it's just, it's incredible. So that's my earliest memory of spades of just being brutally defeated by my father at spades. 
Uh, actually, I'm sorry. Hearts. No, that's it. That's basically it. And then, of course, just playing like Magic when that became a thing and did just all the cards that we play with and all the board games that we play. I mean, I just feel like, uh, weirdly, when I think about it, I feel like I interact with a card uh, every week, every few days. Because, I mean, games are such a big part of our social yeah, scene. Yeah, we were, we were definitely, I mean, we, you know, old maid, go fish, that sort of nonsense. But I do have, like, my, my earliest core memory uh pixar inside styles is definitely my brother matt uh when he when he lived with us uh coming down the stairs one day and being like yo nerd sit down at the table i'm gonna teach you how to play magic and that was kind of the beginning of the end for me (laughs) that was that was that was really yeah that's really what cracked that egg down the rabbit hole you went Yeah, I mean, I love how popular games like Magic that are, like, totally based around cards and their interaction with each other, how, you know, popular and, like, huge those are still in, like, the gaming universe. Yeah, like, as a kid, I was um, always a part of friend groups that were, like, distinctly not cool. And so my friends and I would get together and we would play a a card game that isn't even really a card game, but the game Spoons where you're sitting in a circle passing cards around until someone gets four of a kind and then everyone's making a mad dash for the spoons, people like tackling each other for a spoon. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I also have a lot of memories of like going to coffee shops with my friends when I was like 16 and playing like Egyptian rat slap on the table and getting kicked out of the coffee shop because we're slapping the table too loud and yelling at each other too loud. So I think for me, like I really associate cards with like a lot of fun memories of like social time you know it's something that um i i haven't really played like solitaire or anything like that um so for me cards are like always something that i'm playing with somebody else it's like a give and take experience that's part of what i like about it so yeah so thanks for sharing uh so cards are also uh really old um, as you guys might imagine, they, they've been around for a long time. And the thing about playing cards is that um, we actually aren't really sure how old they are. Um, and in part, that's because, you know, these are really small objects. So they're not like huge, grand works of art. Um, and for that reason, small things, there's an anthropologist who said this once, but small things often get forgotten. You know, they aren't always mentioned in the historical documents. They aren't always included in grand treatises and things like that. Um, But we do have evidence and, you know, some scholars say that cards may date back to like the first millennium of the common era in China. Um, They definitely were around very early in places like India, Um, but we aren't really sure how they spread throughout different geographic regions. So we're not really sure did they develop in Europe um, after they came over from, you know, some other country or were they developing in different places concurrently, you know, it's, it's a little bit unclear. Uh, but definitely the first like documentation we have of people playing card games, uh, was in, in Europe, at least, uh, was in 1426. So, you know, pretty, pretty early. Um, and actually, a lot of the documentation that we get from that is from things right. like uh, sermons where pastors were talking about, like, uh, or priests, I guess, were talking about, like, the sort of card games that people were playing. 
Uh, and here I want to do a shout out to um, a gaming historian, actually. His name is David Parlett. Um, and he has a website. His website is Parlett, that's P-A-R-L-E-T-T, -T, uh, games.uk. And it's like a great, very retro looking website uh, <laughs> where he goes a little bit into the history of games. And he's an author who I think he wrote like the Oxford Dictionary of games um so he's definitely very well versed in the history of cards uh and other sort of forms of amusement like that um and he's talked about this game um that is the the oldest recorded one we have for cards uh and this game is called um Carnefel, and i'm probably mispronouncing it because it was played in bavaria um but Carnefel was a trick-taking game so we talked about spades and hearts and games like that um, and Carnefel was one where you're trying to collect, uh, you know, a set of cards in a finite series of rounds, um, like hearts. Um, now, it's actually really, so it's kind of cool, like there's this scene of, it's uh, an altarpiece depicting like the resurrection of Christ. And there's like a little detail of some soldiers on the front and they're playing Carnefel. So it's kind of fun to see those card games in this like very high mm. art setting. Yeah, so clearly they were something that had already like influenced popular culture to that extent. I, I'm curious, like also timeline wise, mm -hmm. you said like around 14, like 1420 or so was the time that like card games first showed up. And uh, like the printing press was invented right around that time period as well. I have to imagine that coincided a lot with sort of the proliferation of card games into sort of the, the modern into into sort of the culture of the time and, and really making them more available to everybody so yeah that would have been a little bit after this um so you very well may have had cards that you know were sort of like individually produced at this point you know you like you would be producing every card in a deck by hand doing the drawings and um the number illustrations and all of that um That's but really yeah cool. like as the printing press um technology becomes available across europe uh, it's only going to be easier to distribute small pieces of paper. And I mean, that's like a big part of various things that happened in the Middle Ages, like the Protestant Reformation and other social, political, religious movements that rely on moving pieces of paper to get information around to other places. Uh, so, yeah, it is interesting to think about cards in that context. Now, uh, another card game that was really popular in Europe around this time, because Carnefel was, a, from what I understand, kind of a Bavarian phenomena. Um, but another card game that was a little more ubiquitous, it was played in Italy as well as France and Germany, um, was Tarot, uh, or you might hear it called Taroki or Tarok. Um, and this was a really popular game, like I said. It was also a trick-taking game. Um, and it probably, it probably originated in Italy. Uh, and like I said, it was popular in a lot of places. In fact, it, it still is. It's Tarot remains like a very popular card game. Uh, but I guess I want to ask, you know, when you guys hear Tarot mentioned, what do you think of? <laughs> no, I mean, I immediately thought, uh, up until you just started speaking, that we were going to be talking about the <laughs> uh, fortune telling, uh, the death card and all of that when you said Tarot. I mean, that's exactly what I thought you were going to be referring to. I had no idea there's a tarot game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think really common as like 
American people living in the 21st century because we don't really play tarot the card Mm -hmm. game in the U.S. It really only has these sort of like esoteric mystical connotations of fortune telling and, you know, reading tarot cards to try to divine the future. Um, But yeah, tarot actually did start out as just a card game. Uh, And in a lot of places, it still is mostly just considered a card game. Um, And in fact, tarot didn't really get its sort of like spiritualist connections um, or like fortune telling connotations until like the late 18th century. So basically for like hundreds of years, (laughs) the uh, tarot cards. uh, And in fact, the first tarot deck um, that we have, or I should say the oldest tarot deck that we have, it's, um, it's an incomplete deck. Um, but it belonged to the Visconti Sforza family, uh, Visconti Sforza, um, which was like a powerful Italian family. And, um, that deck is in the collection of the Morgan library and museum. Uh, there are some really fantastic images of it. Actually, it's really beautiful. Um, but that one was created around 1450 to 80. Uh, and the reason that it survives probably is because it was owned by really wealthy people who were able to have this like luxury object and who knows how much it was actually played with. So, you know, most of the deck has survived, which is great for us to see. Uh, And one of the things I like about it is that uh, it has some, some of those sort of iconic tarot card, like imagery that we associate with tarot, like the hanged man Mm -hmm. card is like the iconic position of the hanged man. It's, it's really great. Um, but yeah, so tarot, it definitely started out as something that it was much more about just like leisurely game playing. Um, and it wasn't until the late 18th century when you had uh, a French uh, print merchant. His name was Jean-Baptiste Aliette, uh, but he went by the name Eteya, which was just his last name spelled backwards. Um, but he Classic. is, yeah, definitely. Uh but Eteya is widely credited with popularizing card divination, um, both with a standard pack of cards and with the deck used for tarot. And card divination is just, you know, the art of drawing out different playing cards or, you know, special fortune telling cards and using them to try to tell something about the future. Um, and so Eteya is considered one of the first people who made money off of this in France. Um, so he's kind of a, a famous figure in the occult world. Um, but you also had other figures. Uh, one was Madame Lenormand, who was also from France, um, who practiced card divination in Paris. Uh, and she actually claimed that she read for members of Napoleon's family uh, and other sort of famous French figures during and after the revolution. Um, so she's very interesting as well. Uh, and it's interesting to me. So you have a lot of these sort of cardomancers or fortune tellers who pop up and they're using standard decks, they're using tarot decks. Um, but a lot of the early ones are in France and I'm not entirely sure why that phenomenon is. Uh, I'm sure, you know, there are maybe other scholars who could say why France was like a hotbed for that kind of like idea. Um, But it is fascinating that as fortune telling cards start to become a thing in the US, a lot of the decks that are being published make references back to France. They're trying to connect themselves with this sort of like uh, lineage of card fortune telling, which is pretty fascinating. This is all like blowing my mind because I would have thought, you know, up until this conversation that like 
tarot was a well, some kind of tradition like separate but like parallel to like card playing mm -hmm. but that like people started playing with decks of cards playing a game called tarot and then somehow making the connection of like what if we use this deck to try to like i don't know get spiritual like as you know like what if we start doing and so the, like the exercise and the discipline of like using them to like read uh comes out of like the game world yeah. that's kind of wild yeah it I'm also realizing I've never seen a new tarot deck. Hmm. Like I've I've only ever seen them in the context of other people who had them and being well loved. Mm. I think uh, I feel like tarot's having a moment because I just was at a I was at a mass market bookstore uh, uh, in my area and like there was a massive display of tarot decks like themed around pop culture stuff i mean if you if you ever wanted uh the office tarot deck that's oh a thing God. that exists <laughs> yeah well your your friendly local game store honestly probably has quite a yeah. few tarot decks as well uh depending on how large they are ours has quite a few actually so i am actually curious as well because you know like you're saying the two sort of like the fortune telling reading which like matt said i would have associated more with and the the card playing are sort of more intertwined than I expected. Was that very similar? Because now you've mostly talked about like France and Europe. Was that very similar in America? Like was the was the culture of like card playing and sort of transitioning into that like uh, fortune telling, was that very much brought over by the, by the Europeans that ended up in America or did they have their own distinct style? Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, the land that we now know as the United States, since it was colonized primarily, you know, in North America by people from England and France, um, we do definitely get a lot of the European influence on early American ideas about card games. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because tarot itself doesn't actually come over to the U.S. until the early... Um, 20th century really it you know is something that eventually it gets more popular but it, it takes a little bit longer um and part of the reason for that is that uh some of the big proponents of tarot um were groups like the um, hermetic order of the golden dawn a group that's also just called the golden dawn um which had members like the occultist alistair crowley uh, but also really random figures that unless you are really into sort of like late 19th century pop culture, you might not know about. But like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was like super weird and he was into the Golden Dawn. Uh, W.B. Yeats um, and also uh, the illustrator Pamela Coleman Smith, um, who actually created the drawings on sort of the most iconic tarot deck, which is the Rider Waite deck, or it's also called the Rider Waite Smith deck. Um, but that one has sort of those beautiful early 20th century illustrations. It's like the iconic tarot that I think a lot of people in the U.S., when they think about a tarot card, they're going to think about the drawings uh, from Pamela Coleman Smith. Um, but those figures, you know, they promote tarot a lot. It doesn't really catch on in the U.S. until around the 1920s. Um, but it was definitely something that even in the 19th century, in the 1800s, uh, America was still interested in sort of cards and fortune telling. Um, and the connection that you're drawing between like card games and fortune telling is definitely a good one to make uh, because most of the way that you would get your hands on a fortune telling card deck is that you would go into the catalog of a publishing firm like the McLaughlin brothers from New York 
or Parker Brothers, uh, and you would go into their catalog and you would pick yourself out a fortune telling deck. Um, and they were advertised really as games. Um, you know, there's a lot that we could speculate about how much people actually believed in being able to tell the future from, you know, drawing out these cards or how much it was just sort of a fun thing to do at a party. Um, but it definitely was something so to, to draw like a, to draw like a modern par- parallel, kind of like Ouija boards are. Yeah, apparently. for sure. Like that sort of, okay. Just, just to, to give me something. To yeah, I think to. that's great. And you know, in the 19th century, you see a lot of different uh, movements around sort of like spiritual thinking. Uh, the biggest one is probably for our purposes is probably spiritualism, which was the big movement that started um, sort of, you know, early to mid 1800s really took off after the Civil War because so many people died in the Civil War. Uh, And so you get this real fascination with connecting with spirits who have passed on into another plane of existence. So you get the Ouija board, uh, the planchette is another tool, which is uh, mentioned in um, The Haunting of Hill House by the inimitable Shirley Jackson, uh, if anybody's read that. Um, But yeah, so you get like a lot of fascination with sort of the occult, with spiritual practice, with being able to look into the future or look into the the afterlife and connect with some force there. Um, So yeah, the popularity of fortune telling cards might be connected with that. Uh, Another thing that we've talked about too is the fact that cards, you know, and increasingly this becomes true in the 19th century, they're really easy to access. Um, You know, they're small, you can take them with you to basically anywhere, they can fit into your pocket. Uh, they're not expensive because, you know, they're made of paper and, you know, by this time, uh, companies were able to mass produce these companies like Parker Brothers. And so, yeah, they were really accessible. And part of that also meant that they were played by like a pretty broad cross section of the American public. Um And, you know, one thing that's significant is this wasn't just like a white American phenomenon, but we also have documentation that there were um, black Americans who were also either practicing fortune telling um, card dealing um, or participating in it as, you know, sort of like the client for the reader. Um, So it's something that a lot of people were doing. Um, That's so that's so interesting to me that like it's, it's kind of blowing me away that you mentioned something like the Parker brothers in many ways, like were on the forefront of that at the, the time. And, you know, a company is that, you know, nowadays is, you know, one probably might be the large, like biggest selling board game company, you know, in America or for a long time, at least was that they were super involved in that part of it as well. You know, the fortune telling and, and card aspect of it from the very beginning, which is speaks to how ingrained it was in the culture at the time. You know, I mean, Matt made the, comparison to Ouija boards, you know, for me, it sounds a lot like uh, astrology, you know, like people, you know, thinking about, you know, various signs and stuff like that. And there's like a a playful nature to it. Yeah, I mean, there's some great like newspaper articles that have very much like, oh, the kids these days energy, you know, talking about like, oh, (laughs) young women are bringing these fortune telling card decks to parties, and they're doing these readings for everyone. And it's so frivolous and ridiculous. And what are the young people putting into their minds, you know? Um, So yeah, kind of uh, a similarity, I guess, to maybe how we think about some astrology, or I mean, I think even to how we think about, you know, maybe 
Pokemon cards or magic or something like that. You know, it's like, oh, what are those <laughs> sure. kids doing with these silly little cards? There's always some like panic about what the kids are doing. I'm glad that that's been with us for as long <laughs> as we've been like <laughs> writing the news. I'm, I'm almost feeling like this is a weird parallel to make, but it feels like this is there's some kind of parallel between like the spread of cards and their like the way they permeate the culture and like an early and the idea of like an early form of social media or viral media. Mm. Like it's sort of like something that kind of latches on in the public consciousness and with as printing's improving, it's like it's easier to produce. So it's easier to like mass produce and reach more people. And so it's really kind of interesting to watch like a phenomenon like take hold and then become you know, both kind of ubiquitous and then kind of mysterious too, is it like it's pulled into different cultures and contexts. Yeah. Especially like you were saying, Tori, that because of the like easy access to it, that, you know, like it wasn't restricted by class. There was, everybody really had access to this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, going back to podcasting being like such a great place to show images and everything. Uh, I would like to show you guys some pictures and I don't know, maybe we can, link to some images in the show notes or something for this episode. We absolutely can. Yeah. So let me, I'll bring up, it's, it's really just a presentation I made for class. So it's, it's not super fancy or anything. You really have to see the, um, the covers of these boxes. Cause I think they're just so wacky and wonderful. Um, but the one on the left that you can see here um, on sort of the second slide is um, Madame Morrow's fortune telling cards. And this was one published by the McLaughlin brothers um in 1886 uh and what you're seeing is just the box um but it's interesting because the box does have illustrations of the cards on it uh and it looks like they're kind of like standard um like i'm i'm actually not sure if those are like american suit decks or what we would call them but um it looks like you know it's got hearts and diamonds um so it's certainly not you know german suited um, but one of the things that's really interesting about this card game is that it was named, um, after Madame Morrow, who was an actual witch in New York City, uh, who, okay. yeah, who performed card readings for people. And she did all sorts of things. You know, she could make you a love spell. She could, you know, do, you know, palm reading, basically anything that you might think of when you see those neon signs on the side of the road for a psychic and you think, oh, what can I get there? Madame Morrow probably provided those. Um, so yeah, she was a kind of funny figure. She's mentioned in some like publications from New York in the 19th century. Um, so it's interesting because they use her name, but then the illustration on the cover is like some weird Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Like it's not really clear how this connects with cards or with I was gonna ask telling. about these dwarves man <laughs> yeah they're really weird right but they're also like delightfully 19th century um and the box on the right um is one of the ones that I was talking about uh that really makes reference to sort of like the French tradition of cardomancy um and so this is Madame Lenormand's Mystic Cards of Fortune which is from circa 1882 um this was also published by the McLaughlin brothers um and in this one, we see like much more sort of like the trappings of like the medieval witch. You know, we've got this like female figure with a pointy hat and an owl on her shoulder and a black cat with its back arched. So it's definitely, you know, saying like pop culture witch imagery. 
Um, and then we it's see... It's Giving Witch. Yeah, it's it's Giving Witch. Um, and she's also doing this little, like, salt bay pose over the it cars. It is a salt bay pose. Why is it a salt bay pose? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I love it. I think it's oh great. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, so like you see like a lot of this imagery that's definitely, you know, connecting with like medieval connotations, medieval like perceptions of witchcraft, but again, published for like a late 19th century American audience. You know, I think it's important to note that this, these are still definitely classed as games. Like you would find these in, you know, Parker Brothers listed among all sorts of like paper dolls and um like decks for old maid or other games like that so they were in their own section but they're you know seen as sort of like an everyday amusement and something that you would buy and um you know Mm -hmm. kids would play with them and things like that um but an unfortunate thing about a lot of these fortune telling card decks is actually that like big surprise 19th century america uh they're very racist Mm. Um, you get a lot oh of racist imagery on these boxes. Um, and that's connected really with sort of like uh, insensitive depictions of various people groups that are ubiquitous in the period. You know, they're not just found on these cards. Um, but for example, you know, a lot of cards um, would, uh, you know, have imagery or even be called something like, um, hold on, let me find the name. Yeah, I have one here. So there was one deck that was actually called the Gypsy Witch card deck. Um, and it was actually interesting because I was in an occult shop in Philadelphia just uh, last month and found a copy of this fortune telling card deck. So it's still being produced, oh, wow. but it's from the late 19th century. Um, and, you know, Obviously, the the word that they use there refers to the Roma people, and it's actually widely considered, right. you know, um, if not a racial slur, at least a very uh, insensitive way to refer to the Roma. So that's the only time that I'll be saying that. Um, but it's really interesting, I think, because, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is how these cards were easily accessible. Lots of different people could play them. Um, they were, you know, distributed easily throughout the U.S. because you can get them in a catalog. And so you can, you know, order it from Chicago to where you live in, you know, Massachusetts. Um, and unfortunately, you know, rather than really like breaking down walls between Americans, they were kind of buttressing existing ones, sort of playing off mm. of racial stereotypes. Um and, you know, one thing that I was really fascinated by, actually, was I remember with you, Matt, um, in the Curse of Strahd campaign, uh, one of the... I was just thinking about this. Yeah. Do you, do you want to talk about that? Well, I was just thinking, as you were describing that, I was like, oh, man, we really haven't progressed that much because we're still dealing so much with stereotypical images of people and people groups. And in particular, the Roma, you know, I mean, have continued to be uh, stereotyped up to as recently as 10 years ago or so with the Curse of Strahd in D&D, where they had this uh, group of people called the Vistani, which completely embodied every uh, negative stereotype of the Roma from magic evil eyes to their duplicitous uh, thieving nature. You know, I made some effort when I was DMing that campaign to make them a little more complex. Like they're worse in the book if you play them 
as they're written, like they're, they're all scheming and untrustworthy and dishonest and we'll just, it, it's bad. It's pretty bad. And, and, uh, you know, uh, Wizard of the Coast is, is trying, has already kind of retconned a lot about the Vistani and the subsequent reprints and other editions that have come out. So, yeah, I mean, this is, it, games uh, reflect the culture in which they're formed and for better or worse and often for worse. Yeah. Part of what we did in that campaign is that Matt, as the DM, actually, like, the card it came, I think, with a Taroki deck. Yes. The, the like yeah campaign did. Yeah. Yes, I bought I, I bought extra to get the Taroka deck, which means I sort of have a a little pseudo tarot deck that uh, Wizards of the Coast published, and you use it in a really clever way to kind of divine the path of the uh, game. It determines the uh, location for all the various MacGuffins that the players have to go uh, chase down to win the game, uh, which is a pretty clever mechanic and like an interesting like reimplementation of uh, the tarot idea. And the Turka deck does have very creepy and interesting art and stuff that sort of evokes the, the theme of the game. So, yeah. Yeah, visually, I thought it was awesome. Uh, and it's also interesting because I was, I was looking up like the details of how the Turka deck is supposed to work in the game. And it specifically even says in like the object stats for it that it can like only be used by a member of the Vistani. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's definitely kind of playing on those sort of like Roma stereotypes a little bit, just like these fortune telling cards were. So I just thought it was interesting as I was looking that up because I I thought about it like, oh, this is something that was a part of the Curse of Strahd campaign. So it's like fast forward like a hundred and 30 years and we're still thinking about these sort of issues with cards. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting thing to look at. And that actually is kind of, I guess, one of my uh, questions I would have is, is maybe, is that one of the reasons that why mm -hmm. fortune telling cards and like tarot in particular may have sort of fallen to the wayside a little bit? I mean, and, and you know, like we talked about, I mean, tarot is still absolutely a thing you can find all over the place it's not like it's something that disappeared but in terms of popularity i mean we all talk about how we grew up playing hearts and spades and you know bridge and all of these card games but we didn't grow up with tarot decks that's not really a thing that was as common to see and when you think of a tarot deck you think of fortune telling decks you think of you know the palm reader you know in the cottage who's going to go ahead and also pull out a, a tarot deck and go ahead and tell you the future why did that necessarily fall to the wayside when playing cards didn't so much. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I would say to me, the answer to that is a little unclear. Um, I mean, you definitely see the popularity of things like fortune telling cards um, and other objects in material culture that were really connected with sort of like this, again, spiritualist movement in the US. Um, like, for example, the planchette. Um, that definitely falls by the wayside around the early 20th century as the spiritualist movement has gone out of fashion. Um, but you see tarot kind of like coming to the U.S. in the 1920s. So fortune telling cards, they kind of fizzle out, um, but they, they definitely set the stage for um, tarot cards and their popularity in the U.S. And I would say, yeah, they aren't entirely mainstream. Although maybe the better way to say that is they haven't been entirely mainstream, but they kind of are becoming a little bit more. I mean, like Matt said, you go into uh, can hardly go into a Books a Million right now or, a you know, Barnes and Noble or any sort of bookstore like that 
And uh, you really, like, you can't throw a stone without hitting some table that has a display of, like, tarot cards and crystals and candles or something like that. Um, so I, it's becoming more popular. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I love, uh, that's really neat to really sort of recontextualize how, I guess I look at, like, the playing cards and, like, their history. I guess, like, just uh, how would you put, like, a neat bow on this sort of, like, to sum up sort of what we were looking at and sort of what you got from really diving into the history of, of this. Yeah, I think that one thing that's interesting is that, you know, we all were talking about sort of our memories of playing cards um, and how for many of us that started in our childhoods and it was really like a community building exercise, you know, something we were doing for fun, but also something we were doing with other people. Uh, and that really doesn't make us that different from, you know, sort of medieval card players and also from 19th century Americans who were taking fortune telling cards to parties. Uh, you know, it was something that you did as a social activity. Um, but I think it's also really interesting um, as a sort of reminder of how, you know, cards can expand our world. They can, you know, introduce us to new people and new ideas and give us like a fun way to pass the time. Uh, but they also do have sort of a, a darker history of being connected with, you know, not so great uh, ideas, particularly, you know, racism and xenophobia. Um, so just like anything, and I, I think this is a pretty relevant discussion to modern gaming also, where these are still conversations that we're having about card games and about board games, about, you know, how to make it something that um, is not only accessible and fun to play, uh, but also something that is, you know, not actively excluding groups of people from being able to enjoy it. Thanks for letting me share about this uh, topic. This is like a small portion of a paper that I wrote, which was actually more broadly about scale and how it relates to like how playing cards sort of interact with, in terms of size, with people, with each other, with the metaphysical world. Um, so it was fun for me getting to learn a little bit about the history of these card games through that project. And then, yeah, I was just itching to share them with people who would also want to geek out about cards. I love it. This was great. I really appreciate you coming on and t talking to us about it. I'll have Ian share that PowerPoint with y'all just so you have some of the images. I guess this is just another place where it's like, um, it's really fun to do research on games and there are so many sources available to us, but I feel like we don't often like think about them, but the um, American Antiquarian Society has like all the Parker Brothers catalogs digitized from what? like the period from like 1870 to like 1902 or something. So that's a great place to go and oh, just so look cool. at like what sort of games were people playing? Cause you know, games teach us, like, not only do we like talking about games because they're so fun and they, like, bring us together, but they also teach us so much about, like, a given society. Like, you learn a lot from people. You learn a lot about people from what they do in their spare time. So it's a really fun way, I think, to learn about, like, American culture is learning about games. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm so glad we were able to go through this and you were able to, to bring that. It sounds like, honestly, there's a lot more that I'd love to dive into about the just the history of board games in general. But we'll have to save that for another episode as much as I want to just dive into it right now. So, but of course, thank you again so much for coming on. That was amazing. Matt, if people want to get in touch with us, where can they do that? 
They can find us on the gram. Look for us at Dice Pirates on Instagram. We're there all week long, posting updates about what we're playing, mini reviews, uh, fun reels and videos. You can see me in some of the reels. Uh, you can see my human face and gaze upon it. Uh, and even better, you can message us, and we will talk to you because we'd love to hear from you. We always do love to hear from you. Of course, we will be coming out with new episodes soon, so keep an eye out for that. But until then, we'll be right here on the Dice Pirates. Thank you.